So look with me this morning, please, Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll begin our reading in verse 21. Paul wrote, But that ye also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs, and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, as we have opened your word this morning, we pray that we might have discernment of your spirit and understanding the truth that is before us as we consider these closing remarks of the Apostle Paul. We pray, Father, that we might do so with understanding and as well with joy as we consider this epistle and all that has been taught to us herein. We are grateful for your word and thankful that you have preserved it, Lord, that we might be able to read this morning these truths which was established centuries ago, Lord, uh, to the church at Ephesus. And we pray, Father, that we, as your church today, might continue to stand firm in the faith, and that we might continue to stand in the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ as he is revealed. And Lord, we ask all this, that the Lord Jesus Christ might be exalted in and through his church, and that we would be mindful of our absolute dependency upon he who has redeemed us. So Father, as we have gathered this day together around your word, we do ask that you would be honored and pleased, and Father, that the very words and thoughts for us this morning may be guarded, and Lord, that we would speak with clarity your truth as you have revealed it in your, in your word. May your spirit search each of our hearts, and may we as your people examine our hearts before you this day. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and be seated. As we conclude our study of Paul's epistle to the church at Ephesus, I believe it is beneficial that we, as we often do as we progress through our study through this letter and through any letter that we are studying at the moment, that we review some of, the, of this final chapter to Paul's conclusion of this epistle. For the past 19 months, we've been working our way through this epistle. And from Paul's detailed explanation of our position in Christ, as we've seen in chapters 1 through 3, or what we might refer to as we are in Christ, what God has made us to be in Him, who Christ has been made unto us. To Paul's exhortation of the practical Christian life, living out these truths, chapters one or three, uh, 4 through 6, which is Christ in us, we have seen both the sufficiency, through Paul's teaching, we see both the sufficiency of God's provision for us in Christ, and also we see the necessity for our dependence upon such a provision which God has made. For over two months, we've spent our time examining Paul's teaching on the reality of the spiritual warfare in which we, in which we as every believer, that is, is engaged. And we have observed that there are attacks from within and attacks from without. We have seen in the, amidst, in the midst of such attack that we are commanded to stand. And Paul's exhortation for the church at Ephesus to stand is one which literally means to maintain the position so when Paul says, having done all to stand, stand therefore, he is saying maintain the position. And interestingly enough, again, the, the, the term or the phrase to stand is actually an infinitive, 
which in English grammar is that it possesses both the aspects of a noun and a verb, but yet is neither a noun nor a verb. And so the aspect of this statement is that there is a position to stand in this position, and yet to stand also is it saying that we are maintaining this. And Paul goes on to say maintain that position, to stand, stand therefore. And so as we've seen over the past many weeks, this position that we are to maintain is exactly the foundation Paul has laid in chapters 1 through 3 of this epistle. We are to maintain the position we are given in Jesus Christ. Again, if chapters 1 through 3 are all about we are in Christ, this is a position God has given us in Christ, in the beloved, in Him, then we are to maintain that position. So again, I say to you that it is very dangerous for one to pick up chapter 6 of Ephesians and attempt to teach or preach this chapter and about spiritual warfare in which we all are engaged apart from understanding chapters 1 through 3 because if Paul is to say maintain the position, the question we must ask is what position are we maintaining? What, to what is Paul speaking when he says maintain the position? To stand. We are standing in the truth of all that God has made us to be in Jesus Christ. As Paul has so clearly declared in the first three chapters of this epistle. And so that being understood, we see in this chapter of his epistle to the Ephesian believers, Paul expressed the details of this armor, Ephesians 6, 13 through 17. We'll review these quickly. We are to stand in truth, verse 14. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. We stand in righteousness, verse 14, having on the breastplate of righteousness. We stand in the gospel of peace, or the good news of God's peace. Verse 15, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We stand in faith, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. We stand in salvation, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. We stand in the Scriptures, verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But before we move forward, let us consider this truth as we've reviewed over the past many weeks. In Romans chapter 13, verse 12, and verse 14, Paul gives us more clarity concerning this armor which we are being taught in chapter 6 of Ephesians. In Romans 13, Paul explains that for one to put on the armor of light is for one to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 12, or 13, verse 12, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Then verse 14, he goes on to explain, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. What Paul is saying is that this armor is not in addition to God's provision in Jesus, but this armor is God's provision in Jesus Christ. Again, much too often people view, I'm afraid, this armor as though it's something, again, that we have stashed in some closet in our lives, and occasionally we face this spiritual battle or war, and we go pulling out the armor and try to get dressed in it to prepare for a battle. That is not at all what Paul is teaching here. Paul is saying to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to appropriate. God's provision, maintain the position that God has given us in Jesus as he has so clearly explained in chapters 1 through 3 of this epistle. And so again, when we speak of this, let's see how this works out quickly. We stand in truth. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Did he not? No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is the very personification of truth. And understand, Paul begins stating, stand in truth because without truth, there is no true righteousness, there is no true gospel of peace, there is no true faith, there is no true salvation, there is no true word of God. So truth is paramount here, it is the foundation upon which we stand. Then he said stand in righteousness, which again, this, this is a, and Paul is here expounding Old Testament scripture. This is not some new statement he makes. 
In Acts, or I'm sorry, in Isaiah chapter uh, 59, Paul explains or, or is expounding upon Isaiah's prophecy. In Isaiah 59, 1, if you recall, the arm of the Lord is not short that it cannot save. And then he goes on to explain the prophet says, Oh, but the people are separated from God, Israel specifically, concerning because of their sin and their transgressions. And there is no righteousness that is found to be anywhere. But then in the following verses, in, in, in chapter 61, I believe it is, it clearly states that God has clothed us in the garments of salvation and clothed us in the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom and a, and a bride is adorned with the apparel for the wedding. And so here, of course, this is prophetic of the Lord Jesus Christ, which Paul is explaining here in Ephesians chapter 6. Because Paul is now saying, oh, this breastplate of righteousness is given to us by God in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 teaches us clearly when Paul says that it is Christ, God has made Christ unto us sanctification, righteousness, redemption. He is made wisdom. He has made this unto us. Not that we get wisdom from God in Christ. Not that we get wisdom from Christ or, or sanctification from Christ or salvation from Christ. No, Christ is this wisdom. He is this salvation. He is this righteousness. And so we recognize to put on the armor is literally putting on Christ. It's understanding who God has declared us to be in Him. We stand in the gospel of peace. Now it's interesting, in the midst of spiritual warfare, that's what chapter 6 and these verses are concerning, Paul says, oh, stand in the gospel of peace. And so the peace Paul speaks of here is not talking about peace in the life in which we live. He's talking about the peace that we have with God the Father through God's provision of Christ. Who is our peace? Christ. Christ is our peace. Then he says, stand in faith. Well, of course, faith is belief is believing God, literally. It is literally belief, not just belief in God or belief of God, it's believing God. And the only way we are brought to faith in Christ is by the faith of Christ, as Galatians clearly teaches, Romans as well. And so we are standing in faith, in the, in the, in the absolute reality that God has delivered to us in the person of Christ, all that Christ is, all that God has provided for us in Christ. We stand in salvation, take the helmet of salvation. This is another reference to Isaiah, as also is standing in the good news of the gospel of peace. Uh, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's a reference to Isaiah 52, I believe, and also Paul deals with that in the book of Romans. And as well, we find here that, again, we stand in salvation, which is referenced again in Isaiah's uh, prophecy also. And then we stand, so the salvation, of course, the helmet of salvation deals with the mind, as you are aware. And so the mind, of course, is not talking about emotions or feelings. It's talking about intellect as God has created us as intellectual beings. And so through the sermon of the Spirit given unto us, we are to have our minds protected. And then he goes on to say, in this truth of salvation in Christ, then we stand in the Scriptures, verse 17, in the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And again, interestingly enough, he doesn't say, your sword. And this is the only offensive weapon which is provided for us in this whole list of this armor. But notice it's the sword of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's sword, not your sword. Now, we are skilled in God's Word, as Scripture teaches us. We are to be able to use God's Word as a definitive, uh, absolute foundation upon which we stand. And one of the reasons I believe this is the only offensive weapon which Paul has listed for us is simply because it is tangible. The Word of God is tangible. Your, your salvation, the faith, uh, peace with God, righteousness, and truth, though they are absolute, realities, yet they are not tangible. These are abstract truths. And yet the Word of God is tangible. We have God's Word. And so we use the Word of God in declaring 
in God's truth, not because of something we've experienced or some feeling or emotion we have, but it's the absolute definitive truth of God's Word upon which we stand. And we see it's the sword of the Spirit. I think this is often neglected in this entire passage. Being the sword of the Spirit, as Hebrews 4.12 tells us, that the Word of God is quick, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing asunder the joints and marrow, the discerner and thoughts, intent, it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, of the mind of man. The reality is that the sword of the Spirit does its greatest work in us, not out of us. And so God is using the sword of the Spirit is cutting away in us. And then, of course, we use the truth in defense of the gospel and the faith. But let us not think This is our sword to wield around. It is the Spirit's sword, which He is continually, consistently using faithfully in our own lives as He is conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned last week, although Paul had concluded his teaching concerning God's provision of armor, as we've quickly, briefly reviewed, he continued his overall teaching of spiritual conflict by exhorting the church at Ephesus to maintain the position God had granted them in Jesus Christ within the that follow. So let's look again at verses 18 through 20 briefly. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints, and for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Last week we considered the matter of how the purpose of prayer is not to change God, but it is a means by which God's Spirit works within believers to change us. The power of prayer is realized in the purpose of prayer. If the purpose of prayer is that God is using it to change us, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, submission to the Lord's will, to God our Father, to our Lord Jesus Christ, to His Word, the Spirit dwelling within us, making known His Word in our lives, then God, the purpose of prayer is not we pray hard enough and God's going to come over here and answer what we want. No, the purpose of prayer is that we pray submissively in the Spirit to God And therefore, we align with God's will whenever we weren't aligned before, or if we were not aligned. And so the reality is the power of prayer is realized in its actual actual purpose. First John deals with this, Paul deals with this as well uh, in in the epistles. And so we see that Paul's exhortation when he says here to praying always, we recognize that as we submit ourselves to the Lord and His will, we will desire for God's will to be accomplished above all else. And this exhortation, praying always, is not a command for us to do nothing in life other than pray, but rather it is a charge for us to be prayerful concerning all things in life. So in all things, we are to be in communication with the Father. We are to be in submission to the truth of the Word of God, to the Spirit of God, using that truth in our lives, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to submit our will and ourselves. So in other words, we are to remain in a prayerful state, in a continual communication with our Heavenly Father which is to say that we are remain in this communication continually in all circumstances of life. Paul further explains that all prayers and supplication, or prayer and supplication, is to be prayed in the Spirit. Now to pray in the Spirit, again, you have to understand the purpose of God's Spirit. Jesus said His Spirit came what? He said, I will send the Comforter, He will come unto you, He will remind you all things I have spoken unto you, He will teach you all things, lead you and guide you in all truth, and He shall glorify Me. So if we're praying in the Spirit, this is how we're praying in this reality of His purpose for even being given to us. So to pray in the Spirit will result, first of all, in us aligning with God's will. Because if we're praying in His Spirit, even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit 
prays on our behalf, making intercession for us, which is always according to the will of God. Even in that verse, it's clearly stated this is true. Two, praying in the Spirit, we will be focusing on what is spiritual and eternal, not what is temporal and physical. Number three, to pray in the Spirit means we will be preferring others before ourselves. And four, to pray in the Spirit means we will be living our lives in humility, remembering that we are all equally dependent upon God's provision that is made for us in Jesus Christ. In conclusion concerning prayer, Paul finally requests the church in our passages 18 through 20 we just read. He finally, in, in, his, in his conclusion, he requests finally for the church to pray for him. However, his request for prayer is not focused selfishly on himself, which again shows prayer in the Spirit. Here Paul is, an ambassador in bonds, he stated that, and he says, oh, pray for me. But he, notice again, I mentioned last week, Paul does not pray and say, oh, pray that God will deliver me from this prison I'm in. in. Pray God will deliver me from the bonds in which I suffer. Pray God will deliver me from the tyranny, from, uh, deliver me from the situation, the circumstance I am in. Paul does not pray such a prayer. Paul's request is that the church pray for his boldness in proclaiming the gospel. Like Paul, when we pray in the Spirit, our requests are not selfishly motivated, but are focused on the furtherance of the gospel and God's will being accomplished in and through our lives. Finally, Paul states that he is an ambassador in bonds. Paul is stating that he literally is in chains or that he is imprisoned. Yet Paul, again, does not ask the church to pray for his release or escape, but rather requests the church pray the Lord strengthen him and embolden him to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ as Christ's messenger in bonds. So the remaining verses of this chapter, as we looked and read this morning already, has two divisions. And these two final sections consist of verses 21 through 23, the first, and then the last section, which is one verse, verse 24. Verses 21 through 24, let's read them again together. But that ye also may know what my affairs Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye may know our affairs, and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. It was because Paul desired continued fellowship with the church at Ephesus that Paul wrote in verses 21 and 22 that you might know my affairs, I send Tychicus, a beloved brother, whom I have sent unto you this for the same purpose that you may know our affairs, he says again, that he might comfort your hearts. Fellowship with including the church at Ephesus, was of tremendous importance to the Apostle Paul, as it should be with all believers. Since Paul could not be with the church at Ephesus in person, he sent a brother to provide the church information about Paul and his current state. In doing so, Paul believed the church would be comforted by such fellowship and the information which Tychicus would share with them. We find in his epistle to Timothy just prior to his death, Paul expressed his desire to have fellowship with Timothy, and he further explained how he'd been forsaken by Demas, and that others had traveled to other regions while he sent Tychicus to Ephesus. The point of this entire portion of this letter to Timothy is that Paul desired fellowship, not only for himself, but also desired to cultivate and encourage fellowship among other believers, as indicated by him sending Tychicus to Ephesus. In 2 Timothy 4, 9-12 through 12, we read, do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. 
and Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus. So there are some truths from this passage as we consider Paul's sending Tychicus to Ephesus and, and, and taking potentially the letter, but it's going to as well to declare the truth of uh, Paul's situation and the fellowship with the church at Ephesus. There are some things we must consider, some truths from this passage, and truths upon which this portion of Paul's letter was written, which must be considered concerning not only the importance of fellowship within the body of Christ, but also the many elements that, constant, that constitute meaningful fellowship. You know, too often we talk of fellowship, and I know every first Sunday, of course, as you are aware, we have a fellowship meal together. The intent and purpose behind that is not just to get together to spend time together alone. It is to truly fellowship in partnership concerning the gospel, the truth of God's word, that we might encourage, edify one another, we might comfort one another, we might rebuke and correct one another, that we might instruct one another. Much too often we talk of fellowship and all we think of is a social gathering. But this is not meaningful fellowship at all. You can make friendships, but I can have friendships, and I don't mean with a worldly system. I can have friendships with people that don't even know Christ within the world, but I cannot have fellowship with them. There is a difference. And so what is meaningful fellowship? And we find that in this text, and, and upon that which this text is actually founded, we find the truth of meaningful fellowship. Verse 21, let's look at it first. But that ye also may know my affairs and how I do. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and Lord, shall make known to you all things. It was only because of the existing relationship that Paul had with the church at Ephesus that Paul would send Tychicus to share of the state of his welfare with the church. Paul knew that the church would be genuinely interested in his work. Notice he says, I send him that you may know my affairs. Twice he says that, that you may know all my affairs. And so Paul says this knowing that the church at Ephesus was going to be interested and invested in his work, meaning in prayer and in love towards him and the gospel, and because of the fellowship they shared in Jesus Christ. Paul knew that the church at Ephesus would be interested in his well-being, because of the depth of the relationship which they mutually enjoyed. Understand what is being said here. Paul says, I send Tychicus unto you, and I do this that you might, be comforted, and that you might know my affairs. And he says, through knowing my affairs, you are going to be comforted. Now let's stop for just a second and ponder this. Paul is in prison for the gospel. He just stated that. He is suffering for the cause of Christ. And he says, I'm sending tickets to comfort you that you might know my affairs. And Paul is recognizing that even in his bonds, that the church at Ephesus, due to the deep, meaningful fellowship and relationship they shared, that they would be comforted even in knowing Paul's situation, though it was, as we would consider it, a terrible situation to be in. I mean, I don't know anyone here this morning that would love to be in prison, even for the cause of Christ. It's not, I want to go to prison. Will we go to prison? Well, that has yet to be seen, doesn't it? But yet the question is not, will we at this moment? The question is, do we want to be? And the answer is obviously no. But yet Paul says, oh, I've sent Tychicus to you to come for you in letting you know what is taking place in this ministry in which God has given me stewardship. So we are provided a glimpse of this relationship between Paul and the Ephesians in the book of Acts. And we must go back to Acts to, to consider these truths. For in looking in the book of Acts, we are going to understand why Paul could make such statements he makes 
in his closing of his epistle letter to the Ephesians. In Acts 20, 16 through 24, and then 32 through 36. We won't read the entirety of the text, though we could, but just for sake of time, we'll read 16 through 24 and 32 through 36, if you'd like to turn there. For Paul had determined to sell by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia, for he hasted, if it were possible for him to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day, now listen to what Paul is saying to them, Ye know that from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, or with all humility of mine, and with many tears, and temptations which befell me, the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save, only this he's saying, that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Verse 32. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him unto the ship. Now, this description of the relationship which Paul and the Ephesian church shared, specifically the elders of the church, explains why Paul would make every possible effort to maintain the fellowship he shared with the Ephesian church. This is why he would send Tychicus as he did, because there is a foundation of relationship and fellowship already established, already existent. And therefore, he speaks as he does in his closing in the letter to the Ephesians. Luke's record in the book of Acts testifies the foundation upon which the relationship and fellowship between Paul and the church at Ephesus was built. First, the foundation of meaningful relationship here is centered on faith in Christ. Again, this we have a lot in common with Paul, or Paul has a lot in common with the Ephesians. As a matter of fact, apart from Christ, they had nothing in common. The Ephesians were Gentiles. Paul is a Jew. Paul has sent an apostle unto the church at Ephesus. They don't have anything in common apart from Jesus Christ. But might I say to you, that's all they needed to have in common. And so there's a constant fellowship that is consistent and remaining because of the relationship and fellowship they have in Christ. In chapter 20, verses 18 and 20 through 21, again of Acts, he says several things here. You know from the first day I came to Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mine, with many tears, temptations, which fell me by the lying and weight of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's examine this fellowship which Paul speaks of in reality and Ephesians in his closing verses of the letter, closing statements in the letter, in relationship to Acts 20, which again, it shows us a a glimpse of the fellowship and relationship Paul and the Ephesian church shared. First, we see Paul states he has been with them at all seasons. 
Paul had been with the Ephesians for a three-year, approximately a three-year period of time, as mentioned in verse 31 of Acts chapter 20. He had spent time with them during every season or time of their lives during this three-year period. Paul had been with them through every occasion of life during these years. He was devoted to spend the time with the church, and through thick and thin, he ministered faithfully to them. So Paul is saying, look, I'm sending tickets unto you to comfort you and to let you know of my affairs, but all this is rooted and based on the fact that Paul had stayed three years with the Ephesians, in Ephesus with them, ministering personally to them. And remember, Paul is not a pastor. Paul is not an elder in respect of, of pastoring a church. Paul is an apostle, and Paul is a biblical evangelist to the Gentiles. He is declaring the gospel to the Gentiles, and yet he rooted for three years in Ephesus that he might spend time with the Ephesians. Second, Paul says he served the Lord by teaching them publicly and from house to house. So Paul ministered to all those of the church at Ephesus. He did not limit his ministry to only good moments, neither did he limit his ministry to select few believers. This fellowship with these elders and with the church that Paul said, I went from house to house, teaching, establishing you in the faith of Jesus Christ. Third, Paul preaching the gospel to them, he said, repentance toward God and faith toward Christ. At all times, in all places, to all people, Paul taught the same truth to all. The foundation of all meaningful fellowship, hear me please, the foundation of all meaningful fellowship is the gospel. The gospel is the foundation. If the gospel is not the foundation, then you don't know what fellowship is. All you have are social interactions, but not genuine fellowship. Paul says, he preached the gospel to them, repentance toward God, faith toward Christ. And our fellowship as well must be centered on Christ and His truth. Paul's fellowship with the Ephesians was focused on truth. He says repentance toward God. This means that Paul was faithfully teaching the Ephesians to have a heart, a changed heart or mind concerning the person of God. That repentance toward God is not saying just salvation. He's saying that our minds and hearts, or the, the minds and hearts of the Ephesians were being changed concerning who God is. That through His teaching, they are understanding more so who God is. Listen, for the, for the child of God, for a believer in Jesus Christ, this is a continual journey of faith which we walk with Christ. And in this process of this journey which we walk with Christ, our minds, our hearts are continually being changed as the truth of who God and Christ truly, who, who He truly is, is being revealed to us through His Word, and our, li- our hearts and minds are being illuminated to this truth. In other words, as I've said too many times, when I was first born again, at that moment, I knew this. God is good. I am sinful. God is merciful. God is gracious. I'm not going to hell. That's what I understood. But since that time at 12 years old, I now stand in wonder of who this God truly is. And this provision that He has made for me in His Son, Jesus Christ. It is a continual growth of my understanding, of my coming to, to the truth of who Jesus truly is. And so Paul is saying to them, repentance toward God, not only in salvation, but after the new birth, our hearts and minds continually change. And then he says, as he follows up with faith toward Christ. Paul faithfully taught the Ephesians to live in faith, believing Christ as Lord. He is who He says He is. And we see him to be who he is more so every day. Then number two, he said, meaningful fellowship will result in comforting one another. Verse 22, he says, whom I have sent unto you, Tychicus that is, for the same purpose that ye might know our affairs and that he might comfort your hearts. Paul's state of affairs, as I mentioned, was dismal from a physical perspective at least. 
Paul was in prison and not for something wrong of which he was guilty, but because of the gospel. In other words, Paul was not in prison for wrong's sake, but was a prisoner for righteousness' sake. And when considering this situation, one might think that he could possibly comfort the Ephesians who loved Paul deeply was to hear the details of what life was like for him in prison. Nonetheless, Paul sent so Paul knew that Tychicus would comfort those in Rome, as Paul had expressed, or in Ephesians, or in Ephesus, that is, I'm sorry. In Acts 20, 22-24, Paul says, And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not as it shall befall there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of those things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. So notice Paul's focus, again, was not set on preserving his life, as we as well see in Ephesians 6, but rather was set on God's purpose being fulfilled in and through his life. Paul says, pray for me that I might remain faithful to the purpose which God has called me. He says, pray for me that I might be emboldened in the gospel in the time of my bonds, in the time of being in prison, in the time of persecution, that God would embolden me and strengthen me in Christ that I might declare with absolute boldness and confidence faith in God and faith in Christ, the gospel, the good news of the peace of God in Jesus Christ. This was Paul's prayer. Acts 20, 24, but none of those things move me, he said, neither count on my life dear unto myself, so that I might with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Again, when you look at Ephesians chapter 6, is that not exactly what Paul says when he says, verse 19, And for me, pray for me, saying, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. That's exactly what Paul is saying in Acts. He now is Ephesians. Then number three, we see meaningful fellowship is an extension of one's personal fellowship with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 23 and 24. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Paul says, Paul had peace with God and Paul knew the love of God through faith in Christ. And Paul here prayed that these believers would flourish in the same peace, in the same love, in the same faith, and in the same grace of God. Paul's version of this epistle, in which he expresses not only a desire for personal fellowship with the church at Ephesus, but more importantly, in this epistle, Paul expresses the desire that those at Ephesus might experience the same fellowship which he had with the Lord. Notice he says, peace to the brethren. Well, that in itself shows you a fellowship, does it not? He's speaking to brethren in Christ. These are not Jews, these are Gentile believers. He's saying peace to the, to the church at Ephesus. And then he goes on to say, and love, and with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he's saying we are brethren, why? Because of God the Father, because of Jesus Christ. And he says, peace, love, and, and, and faith. Unto you. And then he says, verse 24, Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this. Now Paul does not just limit this to the church at Ephesus, but he says, Grace be to all of those, wherever they be, who love 
our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you see that? Now it's not, it's not the Lord Jesus Christ. Same person, of course. But he's saying, making this personal now. Grace to all of them who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just Paul speaking, but Paul and the church at Ephesus. He says, our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice the next two words. In sincerity. That's interesting, isn't it? All of this so-called casual Christianity that exists today, Paul's not including them in this statement at all. He says, those who love Christ in sincerity. And then he says, Amen. What better way could Paul have possibly concluded this letter than praying for and encouraging his brothers in Christ? to experience and enjoy the truth of the position they had been granted by God in Jesus. As Paul often did, he begins with grace to the reader and then closes with grace to the reader. And I want you to see this again because this is commonplace for Paul in his epistles. In Ephesians 1, 1 1-3, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And then Paul concludes the letter, and he does so summarizing these very spiritual blessings. Now he details them in chapters 1 through 3. After verse 3, you see Paul saying, oh, by the way, here's a spiritual blessing, that we've been adopted as Gentile believers, we've been adopted into God's family. That's a spiritual blessing. Oh, that God has chosen us according to the good pleasure of His will. That's a spiritual blessing. He goes on and on to explain these spiritual blessings. But notice he says in chapter 6, 23 and 24, there's a summarization here again. Peace be to the brethren. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. What a statement. And when you see Paul sandwiches, his entire epistle, everything he has said, is wrapped in grace unto you, peace unto you, love, the love of Christ unto you, the love of God in Christ unto you. He says, all of these truths are wrapped in God's grace, God's love, God's peace. Notice this, which is found only in Christ. With Paul, I say to you this morning as we conclude, let me be honest. With Paul, I say to you this afternoon, with all truth, humility, and honesty, and desire, peace, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and God's grace be or remain with all of you who love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen.